Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, supermassive black holes in the early universe. And putting an AI for heart health to the test. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up on the show this week, reporter Benjamin Thompson has been learning about a pair of supermassive black holes slowly approaching one another in the distant universe. Although they might differ in shape or size, galaxies across the universe all seem to share something in common. At the centre of each of them lurks something huge, a supermassive black hole. Their name rather gives a hint as to what they're all about, as Yue Shen from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign explains. In terms of their mass, supermassive black holes are typically defined as between a million times the mass of the sun to several billion times the mass of the sun. And some of them might be even more massive. But also they are very, very compact compared to galaxies. So when you talk about a 10 billion solar mass black hole, the size, if we talk about the event horizon of that black hole, it is not much larger than, say, the size of the solar system. So you're confining all that mass within a tiny region in space. That's more what makes them so extreme. There's still a lot that isn't known about supermassive black holes. One mystery that researchers have puzzled over is why there aren't more galaxies seen with more than one. But why would a galaxy have two? Well, galaxies have come together, have merged throughout the universe's lifetime, which should lead to situations where one galaxy has two of these black holes that are in the act of orbiting closer before ultimately merging themselves. It is kind of strange, right? We know that those galaxies have undergone a lot of mergers. And if we believe that there is a supermassive black hole at the centre of each and every one of those galaxies, then it should be quite common for those massive black holes to pair within merged galaxies or merging galaxies. But we don't have a ton of confirmed dual supermassive black holes. Those that have been confirmed have been seen relatively close to Earth, meaning the galaxy merger happened in the relatively recent past, in astronomical terms. 
That's because, due to the speed of light, things we observe close to Earth are more recent, and looking further away shows us more ancient events. And, until now, there's been no concrete evidence of dual supermassive black holes being seen in the process of merging further away. In other words, we haven't seen any from a very long time ago, closer to the Big Bang. But that might be about to change. This week, UA and his colleagues report evidence in nature of a supermassive black hole pair in a galaxy merger that happened early in the universe's evolution. It's a time period that researchers are keen to explore, because it will help in understanding how and why the universe is the way it is now. So the particular system we discovered was at a time when the universe was only 3 billion years old compared to the 14 billion years age of its current age. This system of two black holes has got the snappy name SDSS J0749 plus 2255, and it's found within two merging galaxies tens of billions of light years away from Earth. However, despite their heft, supermassive black holes are actually pretty tough to detect directly. In this case, the team saw them thanks to the massive jets of electromagnetic radiation known as quasars that active supermassive black holes spew out as they feed on gas within galaxies. And for the quasars we're interested in, this radiation can be more luminous than all the stars combined in the galaxy. And it's not just in radio wavelengths, it's all the wavelengths, from gamma rays to X-rays to ultraviolet to visible light to infrared and to radio. So it is the entire electromagnetic spectrum, you will see this bright quasar emission. So, all in all, pretty hard to miss. And yet, finding pairs of quasars, and thus black holes, far out in the universe and far into the past, has been hard. A few years ago, UA was part of a team that identified SDSS J0749 plus 2255 using data from the Gaia Space Observatory and the Hubble Telescope. It appeared to be two separate quasars, but looking at the system led to a lot of questions. Are they a pair of quasars at the same distance? Or maybe they are one quasar in the background and a star in the foreground? Or maybe they are a pair of quasar images that is created by a gravitational lens. So if there is a foreground galaxy serve as a lens, it can create multiple images of the same background source. So in order to answer these questions and to pin down the nature of the system, that is what we need, this whole slew of observations, to really convince us that, hey, this is really a pair of physical quasars at the same distance, and they are within a merging pair of galaxies. And a slew of observations is what they did for their new paper. By using multiple telescopes and observatories, some on Earth and some in space, the team probed the quasars at different wavelengths to learn more about the system, showing that it is two distinct supermassive black holes that are early in the process of coming together. We know that they are actually not that different. They are actually comparable in their mass hundreds of millions times the mass of the sun. And their host galaxies are also comparable in mass. So they don't differ much. They're like twins, living in twin galaxies. And right now, they are separated by about 10,000 light years. They still has a long journey before them. We have some estimates that it's going to take probably more than a billion years for them to eventually enter into that final stage of coalescence. 
And right now, they're just kind of orbiting inside of this merged galaxy and slowly decaying their orbit separation. So still a long way to go, but now we know it's going to happen. <laughs> Scientists have been looking for distant supermassive black hole pairs for a long time. So the results of this paper are likely to be of great interest to the astronomy community. Other potential pairs have been put forward previously, but haven't been confirmed experimentally. UA is confident, though, that SDSS J0749 plus 2255 is indeed a pair of black holes. So to be honest, I think there's nothing we can say is 100% correct. So I think we have a good confidence and we welcome independent analysis on this data set. But if it turns out to be not a pair of supermassive black holes, then it will be rather strange because the only other competing scenario is that this is a gravitational lens. But then it creates a very strange system where we don't see the lens galaxy. So either way, I think this data set provides valuable information. Even if this turns out to be a lens quasar, then I think the ball is on the court of theorists, how you can make your model work to explain this very peculiar lensing system. But I'm hoping that we are correct. Christiana Spingler also researches supermassive black holes and has written a News and Views article about the new work. She was impressed by the research and thinks that the team's combining of techniques shows how other such distant pairs could be seen in the future. So I was really amazed to read about this discovery because it has been really decades that scientists are searching to confirm such objects. And it's um, such an extremely difficult work that it really changes the game here. It sets a method to find and confirm such systems. But also the outstanding part is that from the theoretical point of view, this system is exactly what we, we hoped to to observed for many, many years. If the discovery stands up to scrutiny, this will be the furthest from Earth a pair of supermassive black holes has yet been detected. It's assumed that there are many more out there waiting to be found, but only time will tell if there are, and how similar they are to the one that UA and his colleagues have identified. Regardless, for Christiana, this discovery could help reveal a lot about the universe in the past and today. Finding a pair of supermassive black holes in uh, such a young age of the universe is really important to test our current understanding of how galaxies form. And so um, we expect to observe such systems and we did observe one. And that's really already a, a proof that our understanding of galaxy formation and evolution works. And it also opens different ways, let's say, to test uh, also general relativity or how the merger process happens uh, or how galaxies really look like in such distant universe because they are not similar to what we observe in the local uh, universe. And so that's important for us to understand uh, if our knowledge uh, or our theory so far is uh, actually correct. That was Christiana Spingler from the Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bologna, Italy. You also heard from U.S. Schoen from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in the U.S. You'll find links to U.A.'s paper and Christiana's News and Views article in the show notes. Coming up, how researchers are testing whether an AI is ready for use in the real world. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. Can't keep off lost weight? Well, blame your hunger cells. 
A team based in Germany have identified a new neuronal mechanism which stimulates appetite right after a diet. A brain area called the hypothalamus is known to contain cells called AGRP neurons that play an essential part in promoting hunger after fasting. But it hasn't been clear whether these hunger neurons drive prolonged weight gain. Now, a team of researchers have examined the brains of mice that had fasted for 16 hours. They found an increased number of connections between another set of hypothalamus neurons and the AGRP neurons, which heightened their activity. What's more, the connectivity boost persisted for several days after the animal's fast ended. And during this period, the mice consumed more than they had before the diet and gained extra weight as a result. Silencing the neurons in this circuit, however, prevented the post-diet binging. According to the researchers, this mechanism might serve as a potential therapeutic target to help maintain lost weight. You can find that paper in Cell Metabolism. Ever wondered how gliding mammals developed their flaps for flight? The ability to glide, or fly, has independently evolved seven times in different groups of mammals. In each case, a flap of skin called the patagium develops between the forelimbs and the hindlimbs, acting as an aerofoil. Now, a team based in the US has investigated how this skin flap develops in two mammals, the marsupial sugar glider and the Cebus short-tailed bat. These two species aren't closely related. Their last known common ancestor lived 160 million years ago. But the authors identified a network of genes in both animals that drives the skin thickening required to kick off the formation of flight membranes in developing young. Within this network is one key gene called WUNT5A, which also causes skin thickening in the ears of developing mice. The results suggest that the genetic toolkit for making flight membranes predates mammalian flight and was redeployed from other skin formation processes. You can find that study in Science Advances. Next up on the show, an AI that measures heart function and how researchers are testing whether it's actually ready for use in hospitals. Whilst ChatGPT has recently launched artificial intelligences into headlines, AIs are actually already all around us. For example, a couple of years ago on the podcast, we talked about an AI that could measure something called the left ventricular ejection fraction, an important metric of heart health. Normally, this measurement is done initially by a sonographer, who looks at an ultrasound of the heart as it's beating, and takes tracings by drawing around the ventricle to show the difference between its size when full and when nearly empty. These tracings are then checked by cardiologists, and from that you can find that ejection fraction, which gives clues as to the health of the heart. This whole process is all quite labour-intensive though, so the idea behind the AI was to automate things. It seemed to work pretty well, but the researchers weren't satisfied with just developing it. I think there's increasingly more interest in AI in healthcare, and part of our motivation is to increase the rigour of how clinicians and scientists evaluate AI in this space. This is David Ouyang, one of the developers of the AI. 
To rigorously evaluate their tool, he and his team have been pitting the AI against human experts in a large clinical trial, in the hopes of determining if the AI is really ready to be used by clinicians. To find out more, I called him up and started by asking how they've been putting the AI through its paces. The standard American workflow is that a technician or sonographer scans the patient and comes up with a preliminary assessment that's ultimately reviewed and signed off by a cardiologist. We wanted to really test it head-to-head between the sonographer and the AI to really assess, you know, how well does it integrate into the clinical workflow and what are the opportunities as well as the risks. And the way that you sort of put it through its paces is you did something called a blinded, randomized, non-inferiority clinical trial. Now, there is a lot of adjectives there, so I was wondering if you could just sort of unpack what that is for me. These are the pillars of clinical trial design. Blinding refers to the fact that the cardiologist was not told whether it was AI or sonographer that gave the interpretation, and they actually had to assess which they guess it would be. This is important to minimize the bias that the cardiologists have, potentially if he or she either likes AI or dislikes AI, might be harsher or more lenient on the assessment. Randomization speaks to essentially applying one-to-one to make sure that the set that the AI and the sonographer evaluates is similar. And non-inferiority means that we initially sought out to just say that it is almost as good or just as good as sonographer because it's something that can save time, but wanted to also assess whether it can be even better than sonographers. And so when you conducted this clinical trial, how did the AI perform? There's a couple of key outcomes we're really happy to present in this study. First, we were able to show that cardiologists can't tell the difference between AI and sonographer. This is a sign that AI is already quite good because it's already to the point where cardiologists can't distinguish between the two. But our primary result was how often the cardiologists had to adjust the tracings done by either AI or sonographer. And we found that the AI tracings were changed 16% of the time, while the sonographer tracings were changed 27% of the time. So the AI was able to save them time? Yes. In addition to saving time, the AI was actually able to allow for more precise measurements. And were you surprised at all at how the AI performed or how well it performed? We were very pleasantly surprised. The trial was designed as a non-inferiority trial because we really wanted to hit the bar that this was good enough or this is similar to sonographers. And we were surprised to show that it actually performed better than sonographers in many aspects. And I think that this really speaks to the promise of the technology. And so when we last spoke about this on the podcast, one future challenge was it was not quite clear whether this would work in any hospital with any sort of equipment. Where are we now with this sort of challenge? Because this was such a big effort with so many sonographers and cardiologists, this is a single center study. But it was an external validation study, meaning that the AI was trained with images at Stanford, and then the trial was run entirely with images and cardiologist sonographers at Cedars-Sinai. But in other studies, we have shown that this AI seems to be working quite well in many different data sets and many different populations. We're increasingly both seeing prospective evidence such as today as well as retrospective evidence across many different centers that this AI feels ready for prime time. So one thing that comes up often when talking about AI, especially in the context of healthcare, are there are discussions of bias and things like that. Do you think there is a risk that this could perpetuate existing biases in the healthcare system? I think that 
having more technology allows for greater access to care. Because this is something that is already being done frequently, but maybe there's not enough trained cardiologists and sonographers to interpret these images, this allows for more patients to get the type of care that is optimal and faster. And second, that we were very careful in our analysis to show that the AI results were consistent across racial, demographic, and age groups. And I think that this is something that is really important in the validation of AI. And we were fortunate to see that generally this AI works well across all the subgroups that we tested. So what would you say then are the implications of this paper? I think there's a couple of implications I want to point out. First, I think that this shows that AI is definitely safe. It's something that we shouldn't worry about deploying in the echocardiography space. Second, when we use AI, we show that it actually saves both sonographers and cardiologists time, so potentially can optimize the workflow, prevent burnout, and improve the quality of care. And third, I think that in our supplementary analysis, we now have a better sense of how many training examples it takes to get really good AI or AI to the level of clinicians. There are still some AIs that are trained out there on the order of thousands of studies. Our AI was trained on the order of 144,000, so close to 100x larger. But I would say that we're pretty confident that AIs trained with more than 100,000 studies will probably be near human level. That was David Ouyang from the Schmidt Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in the U.S., For more on that story, check out the show notes for a link to the paper. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. Nick, what have you been reading this week? Well, it's not so much reading this week. I've been hearing something. So I'm actually going to send you a sound that I want you to listen to. And I'll play this for the podcast listeners as well. Sort of drumming happening, possibly. So, first question I have for you is, what do you reckon this sound is? Um, like a really slow tap dancer. A l- really slow tap dancer. It's not a bad yeah. guess. My first thought was it sounds a bit like popcorn popping, but it's actually oh, yeah. the sound of a stressed or very dry plant. How is the, how is the plant uh, tap dancing? <laughs> Um, sadly and stressedly i'm struggling to unless it's like sadly tap dancing i'm struggling to understand how a plant is making these weird noises at me so we don't actually know how the plants are making this sound so this is from a paper in cell by lila kadani and colleagues and i was reading about it in a news article in nature and so plants get dry they get stressed and apparently and we've never observed this before they make sounds when they do so and I must say as well, these have been edited so we can actually hear them. You can't normally hear them. I was going to say, is this one of those ones where it's like at a really high frequency or is it just really quiet? It's at a very high frequency. So it's around 20 to 100 kilohertz, which is just beyond the edge of human hearing. So humans may be able to hear some of the sounds, but most of them are beyond our sort of range of hearing. But animals could. Some animals may actually be able to hear the sounds. But to return to your question of how exactly it works they don't know but they have a theory so you might remember that plants have like phloem and xylem these are tubes for transporting various things that they need like water and nutrients and so what they reckon is going on is that in the xylem that transports water and nutrients from the roots 
They reckon that when it's very dry or the plant has been cut or something like that, then there are air bubbles forming. There's not enough water, so there are air bubbles forming and they're making these sort of pop sounds and that's the sort of origin of these sounds. But we don't actually know. So the researchers sort of, you know, doing a mental health questionnaire with the plants, are you feeling very stressed today? And then just sort of sticking a tape recorder in front of them and recording their responses. (laughs) Um, No, not quite. Unfortunately, plants do not yet have the ability to fill in surveys as far as we know. Um, But they do make these sounds apparently when they are cut or when they are water stressed. So the way that they did this study is they positioned microphones around the plants in order to capture sounds from them. And they compared healthy plants that are well watered against ones that are in drought stress so they don't have enough water or ones that have recently been cut by something as well and so when they were looking at this the plants that were in this drought stress or recently been cut they're making around 35 of these sounds every hour whereas the ones that were well watered and you know sort of happy plants for lack of a better way of putting it make about one sound per hour so they're making a lot more sounds when they're in some sort of stress So it's pretty interesting to think about plants making sounds at all. But, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and I am standing there, I would definitely hear that. I suppose the key question is whether this sound is just a sort of byproduct or somehow deliberate. Like, is anyone claiming that it's communication? Again, it's another thing we don't know. We do know, and this lab have actually published about this before, that plants will react to sounds. So... In the past, they looked at a particular kind of primrose and showed that when they played the sound of a flying bee to the primrose, it started releasing nectar. So potentially, there could be some sort of interplay going on. And as I said, some animals like bats and things could very well hear this sound. But as to whether there's some actual communication going on, we don't really know. So one person who's interviewed for this story, who's a biologist, they said that they think it's unlikely that the animals are really going to be able to hear these sounds. Like, you know, you'd have to be very close to the plant. The plant's making these sounds very quietly. So it's unlikely that they'll be able to hear them in their opinion. But we just don't know. And I suppose you would need to have a sort of beneficial outcome if we're saying that it's sort of an evolved trait to make these sounds. They'd need to benefit in some way from other plants or creatures hearing them which we don't have a mechanism for no exactly there would have to be some sort of benefit to it but we just really don't know at this point like plants have got all sorts of ways of communicating with each other and with other animals this could be a way but we really don't know but what the team have done is they've trained a machine learning model to predict whether plants are dry or stressed based on these sounds. So if you were to position microphones, say, in a greenhouse or something, and were like, oh, are my plants stressed? They've made a machine learning model that could tell you this with about 70% accuracy. So it could be a way to sort of monitor how plants are doing in the future. That's ingenious. So it could actually be of use to us. This would be helpful to me, I've been repotting my houseplants this weekend and worrying about whether I know that they're happy or not. And I'm like trying to get a sense of like, are you enjoying life, plant? Am I killing you? And I'm not very good at it. So I can certainly do with them. 
with borrowing this the plant microphones and the machine learning model well maybe you can ask them shamini and perhaps they'll lend them to you but i think that's more or less all i have this week shamini what story do you have for us so i've been reading this news article in nature about a science advances paper where they've made what they're calling 3d printable glass that's made from proteins so it's kind of like biodegradable glass okay that seems like it could be really useful for you know waste management stopping things building up recycling that sort of thing sounds very cool i think ultimately that's kind of where they're hoping the use will be glass is actually an easily recyclable material but a lot of it still ends up in landfill and it does take then thousands of years to actually break down whereas this new kind of material is very easy to break down very easy to decompose because it's entirely you know, organic. It's made from chains of amino acids, which make up proteins, just like most of the materials in our body are made of proteins. And, you know, we are something that microorganisms can very easily break down. I mean, that's that's sort of a macabre way of putting it, but I guess you're right. So how have they managed to do this, to make this sort of more easy to break down material? Well, the hard bit hasn't been making proteins that, that degrade easily. That That they'll do. The hard bit has been making it like glass, and in particular to make it transparent. And in this case, they can also 3D print it and cast this material in moulds. And the final material they've got is actually in some ways similar to glass. So I don't know whether you've ever heard people sometimes describe glass as just a really slow moving liquid. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I've heard that before. So people say that the bottom of church windows are thicker than the top because actually the glass is flowing slowly downwards, which is not in fact true. But it is true that glass is a, it's what called, it's not a liquid, it's called an amorphous solid. And it's got this irregular pattern of atoms, which is part of the reason why light can travel straight through it. So what they've done here is they have changed the ends of these amino acid chains change these molecules so that they don't start to split up before they melt. They've then melted them into a liquid and then rapidly supercooled them. So it's below freezing and actually solidifies while retaining this liquid-like arrangement of the molecules. And they managed to get this to retain and stay solid even when it returns to room temperature. And because you've stopped the amino acids from crystallizing and forming a crystal structure, that's why they're transparent. A crystalline structure would make the glass kind of cloudy. Right, okay. So they've got this sort of disordered structure going on and that lets the light through like it does with glass. Roughly, yes. Yeah. So there's a nice picture in the article of this sort of very nice see-through shells that they've sort of moulded out of this material, which in this case looks totally clear, although sometimes the glass comes out coloured and they can also, to some extent, tweak the peptides, the amino acids, and change the properties in different ways so it seems like they've nailed down the transparent part of what glass does but glass also has lots of other quite useful properties so does it do everything that glass does well they say that it could be beneficial in things like lenses and actually the fact that you can give it different properties you could make less rigid glass so you could use it in sort of miniature flexible devices and of course the key thing here is this sort of biodegradable you can make it break down and you again you can sort of tweak that slightly but you can create a material that will break down in a compost heap or they also exposed it to digestive fluids and again showed that you could break it down although that 
is also to some extent a sort of downside. You can't use this for everything. For example, they noted you probably wouldn't want to use it for drinks bottles because it would slowly just decompose in in the drink. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe it's not ready to quite replace glass yet. So what are the sort of next steps for this work? Where are they sort of taking it? Well, this is just very basic. A researcher's quoted as saying, this is a very fundamental study. The article sort of describes it as just a, a lab curiosity at this stage. But this definitely opens new paths for researchers to explore. And I just think it's very cool, the idea that something that appears to be glass could be made of sort of peptides the same way as, as you and I are. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for chatting to me today, Sharmini. Listeners, for more on these stories and for where you can sign up to The Nature Briefing to get more like them, check out the show notes for some links. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. As always, though, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast, or you can send us an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Nick Petrichow. Thanks for listening.